Hi, I'm Phoebe Lovett and this is Deep Read, a podcast where I have conversations with big thinkers about big ideas. Every episode is accompanied by a further reading list, which you can find at phoebe.substack.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please like, subscribe and share it with a friend. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Isabella Burley, CMO of Acne Studios and founder of Climax, a digital and soon to be physical distributor of specialist materials. I first met Isabella when I was commissioned by her during her tenure as editor-in-chief of the London-based style and culture magazine Dazed, a job she landed at the age of just 24. In 2020, Isabella launched Climax, which has quickly become renowned as an influential purveyor of rare and unexpected books, zines and other cultural ephemera. Having long admired the project from afar, I was excited to learn more about Climax from Isabella herself. Hi, we're recording. <laughs> Hi, Isabella. Thank you Hi. so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So the last time we spoke, mm-hmm. disclaimer, we are doing this for the second time. I think it's okay to admit that. I agree. Um, we had a little technical mishap and Isabella very kindly has made time to do it again. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You were off to New York. I was. How was it? Great. Yeah. yeah always is good. Have you had New a... Yorkers- good energy it never never disappoints it never disappoints it is a bit rough being there when it's really like rainy and sweaty it's very sweaty in the summer but yeah. i weirdly don't mind that yeah it kind of just adds air con. we don't have air con over here true um how's your summer been in general it's been really intense i feel like i haven't had a second to um come up for air but I'm very excited to do that soon hopefully. are you because I was gonna ask like what you're very you strike me as a very industrious person I don't know you super well but just from from you know your CV and your current roles and everything your output what's your relationship like with like leisure and downtime I think I'm pretty good that when I'm like set aside that I'm having downtime I really really like lean into that but I also think I really enjoy being busy and and having multiple things going on at once and I think it keeps me really excited and curious and I think if that's in your nature it's kind of hard to separate oh this is work and then I'm gonna Mm. kind of disassociate from that so I don't know for me it's just like if I'm excited about things I want to spend my weekends exploring that in whatever way that is but I also think I'm really good at shutting everything off and kind of switching off yeah and so you're like quite extreme so you're either like in it or you're just like very much out of it yeah I think it yeah completely those two extremes yeah it's interesting I I think I I think a lot of people I know who I'd say like yeah who I'd describe as industrious that's their mode Mm -hmm. they aren't so great at moderation no um (laughs) their day-to-day tends to be quite insane yeah but when they decide it's done or Mm -hmm. they're having a break they are way more they have way better boundaries yeah <laughs> and they really switch off 100 percent. that's you yeah no I'm ready to like fully put an out of office on turn off my <laughs> phone for a week a week or so also <laughs> good I'm glad to hear you've got holiday it's more coming. just like projects come in or or things change and and I don't know you have these ideas that you want to almost carve out time to explore further and I think it's really hard to like shut that off if you're excited about things to kind of start working on stuff. Would you say that that's your state of mind and being most of the time that you're quite excited and motivated? 
I think it really goes through waves, but I think if I have something in my mind, it's sort of, you can't, it's really hard to like take it out and, and you're kind of constantly sort of scratching at it. And I think also sometimes another thing that I feel like I've learned over the years is sometimes you can have a great idea and have a gut instinct of wanting to do something and throw yourself into it. But then maybe other things come up and you're sort of pulled away from from working on that. But actually it all happens for for a reason. And Mm. then you're kind of pulled back to something and you're like, oh, I I was meant to sit on that idea for five years. I was meant to sit on that for six months, whatever it is. And you kind of have to trust that um, that's how it's meant to be. It it, it like will just only benefit the project or the idea. Divine timing. 100%. Because you mentioned to me before and I thought about this a lot since that you'd had... Was it that you had the name for Climax way before you knew yeah. what Climax was? Yeah, I was in New York one spring or summer. Yeah, I think it was May and 2016. Mm. And I had seen, I was in a vintage store and there was this amazing label on this like 80s skirt, red skirt that was, and it was said Climax. And it was just like these amazing big red lips. And it was so, the name was just so strong and it really just like, I don't know if when I still even when now I still have the screenshot on my phone from that picture I took of the label and it's like it was so such a light bulb moment of just being like that's it like that's Mm. what I've been thinking about in my head for a while and I couldn't express it in with a word or whatever it kind Mm. of is and then yeah sat on it for a few years and I think I was slowly kind of buying material that I felt would in some way be part of climax whatever it would be and then um I think I was quite then got quite serious about putting this idea together was speaking with different art directors and graphic designers and then I got the Helmut Lang role and that then pulled me away from it because Mm. I was then suddenly doing my role at Dazed and then also had this big role at, at Helmut Lang and was splitting my time between London and New York so Climax kind of went was put on the side a little bit which I think is actually for the best and then yeah during Covid in 2020 is when I finally had that headspace moment to really work on it um, because Days was kind of put on, or the, the next two issues of Days were like put on hold. I remember Jefferson calling me and being like, I don't think we can shoot the summer issue. And I was like, cool. So it was a bit like I have all this time on my hands and it was like finally the perfect moment to like really go deep into this project that I've had kind of like running through my my head for, yeah, five plus years. And so the name initially struck you. Mm-hmm. And did you always know that it was going to be some kind of cultural ephemera project? I think I'd always been really interested in collecting that material um, alongside, obviously, like photography, artist books, erotic material, um, counterculture, pop culture material, just kind of like constantly being drawn to these things and not quite knowing what it would be or how it would manifest. But I think then when I saw the name, I was just like, this is what this is. And then again, was like getting a bit more serious about collecting and still wasn't sure whether it would be a resource library, a store, um, a kind of digital archive of this like rare printed ephemera. So I really wasn't sure what it was. And then I think, yeah, in 2020, when I was getting more, finally had the time to like give my energy to it. Mm. It was then when I started working with Christopher Lawson, who um, is a really, really good friend of mine. And, and he's a wonderful graphic designer and art director. And he really helped me shape the kind of visual direction for Climax that then I think seeing 
his kind of logo lock up and all of the kind of printed material that mm. we have with all of our orders so we have these like great pink comps, comp slips and envelopes and address labels I was suddenly like oh this is what this is mm. and then we translated that into the website and we worked um, Christopher worked very heavily on it with someone that I used to work with at days called Simon and I think then I was like oh okay this is what this is and it was like finally like quite fully realized which was great that's interesting um, because obviously you'd because conventionally you would assume that the brand identity is reflective of the concept rather than the brand identity shapes what the concept becomes. Exactly. Where so with you obviously the word climax and the visual identity um, that Christopher developed mm-hmm. helped you to sort of find a niche with it that's I think you described it somewhere as like playful. There's a touch of erotica in there. Like that's kind of your mo with with what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's still like, I always, or I hope that it still feels like really thoughtful and kind of intellectual, but done in quite like a, a kind of slightly kitsch, playful way. And I think it's really about finding cultural material that speaks to that. And I know when we did the last recording, I was like mentioning something I just found, which was um, this pack of playing cards that Catherine Opie had done called Dyke Deck. And it was these amazing black and white images of um, people in her community and um, it was also like an open casting call she did in the late 90s in San Francisco and they kind of became these like amazing uh, this dyke deck Mm. and so I think it's also like finding material like that that it's like it's such a like with dyke deck it's like it's such a punchy name the imagery is like so beautiful and kind of timeless and iconic and then, you know, the nature of playing cards is kind of so ephemeral yeah. and like throw away and it's something that like sits on your shelves and you don't use. So it's like, I think when I find material like that, I'm like, that's climax. And it's mm. like really hard to sometimes describe to people what that is. But I think it's this kind of combination and, and this kind of like, yeah, this like wink to things that This is like an intersection of... A hundred percent. It's of, that intersection yeah. of like, and I think it maybe even speaks like a bit to like where I sit within different worlds because I've never really like been so much in the art world yes I've obviously been a lot in the fashion world and like in publishing but I've always felt like I kind of sit a bit on the edges of all of those and Mm. I think that's why that material like interests me so much and speaks to me um and I think then it was just like finding a place for that and also like that the Climax logo that I saw in New York in 2016 it's like it was so kind of like in your face and fabulous and like big and bold but kind of done in a very like slightly kitsch chic Mm -hmm. way that was like it was a brand in the 80s so I think it was like all of those things of just like how that word was used Mm -hmm. and as a as kind of branding that was so interesting and was so of its time obviously the branding we have is is very different and it's like more subtle in many ways so I think it's almost about taking a a word that is so is quite loaded and quite kind of fast and and um kind of evocative and like how we kind of construct that in like a more abstract way so that it's Mm. it becomes a bit kind of awkward Mm. I mean, I think there's also something really smart about bringing a, a sense of sexiness and playfulness to, you know, an a, a field that is in, intellectual and can 100%. be a bit dry and a bit dusty. And people think about yeah. not that you just sell books. If anything, I'd say that your remit is way broader than books. Mm-hmm. It really, you know, you've got fly, um, 
posters and as you say cards just all these different cultural yeah. artifacts but it could all be a bit um and I say this as someone who you know works in a similar field so yeah. not in a critical way but it can be a bit self-important and a bit yeah. intellectually lofty and so having like a great name you know fun branding yeah just I think it just hooks people a little bit more 100 percent who do you think like what do you know about your customer like what do you what? Oh, I love like every time anyone buys anything I love stalking all of my customers <laughs> no Google. but it's also like I don't know there's also been people that I've really respected over the years like even very very early on like Martin Sims was buying like we love Martin we love Martin like, buying like you know super early like copies of this fetish magazine in that was in the UK called Madame in a World of Fantasy um, and then also like you know photographers that I really really respect um, a lot of artists art directors so I think it's always yeah I find it so fun that it's like people that I've really respected and I respect the way that they work with material um, engaging with what we have and then also like finding I don't know like kids that are just like so excited to have discovered something and yeah friends and yeah I love that side of it it's like my favorite thing it is fun from when I've sold things myself before mm -hmm. I mean it is hard to resist a little google of someone yeah. when you're when you're like testing checking the yeah. orders or even printing out the orders yourself yeah. to ship Sometimes. Especially when you like really admire their taste and their point of view on things. I yeah. think them finding stuff that they're excited by within something that's so close to my personal taste is really right. cool. Yeah, yeah, totally. And back to the kind of the, th the point about divine timing, you know, the fact that you had to sit on it until the pandemic was kind of golden in a way. 100%. Because I would say that you sort of in part led and in, and were in part were a part of sorry um this resurgence in interest in cultural ephemera um rare and used books obviously idea books kind of i would say started that wave would you agree oh, yeah 100%. yeah um but there definitely feels like there was there's been a kind of second wave an interest in literary and cultural ephemera um and that's to me seemed to like really gather speed during the pandemic what do you do you have any thoughts on like what you could attribute that to I think it was a real mix of things, but I think for myself personally, we were working at such, we were all like working at such speeds within the industries that we we're working in. So with days, it kind of felt like we were constantly like move, like as soon as one magazine had gone to print, we're working on the next one. When I was working with fashion brands, it was constantly like onto the next show, onto the next campaign idea, onto the next special project. And you kind of were so forced at all times to kind of like, pull new references new mood boards together and and I think because of the sheer like speed and and demand and pressure that gets put on you you're kind of like scrolling through Instagram or like finding stuff online because you needed something quickly and mm. and I think you know the pandemic was a moment for all of us to kind of like pause and I think in a way the shift of going back to physical objects and like kind of re-looking at bodies of work that you feel like you've mm. seen every single image of one photographer or one artist's work and then kind of rediscovering um rediscovering material from that series or from that mm. artist I think felt really exciting so I think it was kind of yeah a bit of a combination of things but I think this love of of kind of physical objects and also like I think that's also what's so much about the ephemera is like how it was designed like the paper stock all of those mm, details like mm, was mm. it gloss was it matte like all of that made 
what that object was meant to be and and obviously maybe the intended uh, the intention of that object is then shifted and I don't know I, so I think all of that is always really exciting for sure and I think also you know the kind of uh, artifacts that you're selling um, provide context for people who are interested in cultural context um, in a time when everything is sort of decontextualized and all you get is that you know the one sh- the one shoot from ID from 1994 that managed to make the rounds on Pinterest and I think that people really think that everything is on the internet and it's obviously patently not true it's like everything yeah. that was uploaded to the internet is on the internet yeah. and there was a whole cultural world that didn't that didn't end up on the internet for whatever reason or, or portions of it sections 100%. of it and I feel like for me the thrill and I'm sure the same for you when you discover an object that you maybe never seen before is like you get an insight into a scene or a world that you're interested in that you could never have got any other way than from finding that piece totally and I think it's also even interesting like right now the Barbican has a big um, retrospective of Carrie Mavine's yes, work and like great. we have over the years and and we currently have like some of her printed ephemera from like a show she had in the 90s at PPOW and again it's like just kind of interesting to see you know and and it's like I'm talking specifically about one body of her work the kitchen table series which is um yeah I guess for a lot of people it's kind of the the body of work that she's most well known for and I think then it's like interesting to find a piece of ephemera that's you know speaks to another body of work or was like oh the first time that kitchen Mm. table series was um exhibited like that's what the flyer was for that and I think it's just like creates this extra dialogue in parallel Mm -hmm. with like yeah the material that is presented in a certain way because you see it in a book or in a in an exhibition or it's framed and I don't know there's just something so like special about them being like oh this was the flyer that was for Mm -hmm. the first time that body of work which is kind of yeah. gone on to be a work that has really defined her career mm. and to see that and there's just like something so kind of humble and like special about just seeing the like honesty of like that flyer at that time and what that meant yeah the origins of the project 100 and i guess at a time when also people obviously put so much more care and thought into their printed collateral because exactly. there was nothing else exactly like the, the rave flyer was the only evidence of Way the rave to go, yeah to like figure out like what party was happening that yeah weekend. i mean i love that shit as well i maybe <laughs> some people listening like you lot of weird getting yeah, off on like, old flyers okay. but i'm like oh can't think of anything better um so yeah i mean we've just talked a lot about climax without really i guess predefining what climax is and but i'm sure anyone listening has now got the gist if they weren't familiar with it already and can you just tell me a bit about like what your do you have what your ambitions or your vision for it because i feel like you launched it just as a project passion project almost see where it would go and now it's gathered a lot of steam yeah and i think in a in a way not that I was naive about it when I launched it, but I think I really had no expectations about what it could become, um, whether people would even ever buy a single book from from the website. Um, and it's kind of, yeah, like spiraled so amazingly over the last, it's going to be three years in September. Wow. And I've been able to do like great projects with like one of my best friends, Ava, does Heaven by Mark Jacobs. Yes. And we've done two t-shirts with them. And then we have on at the moment this amazing kind of takeover of the ground floor at Sadie Cole's HQ yep. on Kingley Street to coincide with their exhibition Hardcore. And that was just like a dream come true, being invited by Sadie and the team to to have like a climax book space um, in the gallery for the duration of the show. So I think there's also like when I started, I had no 
sense of all of these other things that could come and I think yeah I just feel like more and more excited about what is in the future and Mm. I actually just came from a great meeting with Christopher who does as I said all of our visual direction and and yeah we're we're putting together um our first kind of publishing um I was just about to say is publishing something that you would it definitely is. Um, it's yeah, it's so I Friday think the evening. First, <laughs> the first book will hopefully come out October, November time. Oh, wow. Great. You move really fast. <laughs> you don't know, waste like, time. And then because it was like, oh, it has to go to print end of August. I was like, okay, that's my summer vacation. No, done. that's fine. I'll just, just like make it work. Um, and then, yeah, also just thinking about it started as something very specific, but is there a bigger universe around Climax that I could lean into and explore at some point? I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I would, I think a lot of the kind of break I'm having over the summer, I want to. You're not having a break. <laughs> I have a one week You're having break, an away and day. The, the weeks around it. Oh. You're having a company retreat. But I think it is also, it literally is me, me myself, at my company retreat. Um, but I think it's more just, again, it's about headspace as well. And I think it was like, yeah. with the pandemic, it's like you had that headspace. And I think when we're not in a global crisis. It's yeah. just like when, how else do you find a way to like carve out headspace to think about one project when you have multiple different things mm. that you're working on and you don't have the luxury of kind of doing that whenever. Um, right. So I'm like genuinely excited to have a bit more. Because you do have a, a full-time a full time job. I do. <laughs> um, as the CMO of Acne Studios, which for most people would be quite enough <laughs> not for me not for you like how do you I'm really intrigued like what's your daily routine like do you do you, are you do you where are you gaining these hours are you like is it what are you sacrificing rather is it sleep is it social time like what, it's probably where have you social cut the time. fat okay yeah because I feel like for everyone who gets a lot done they have they've cut the fat yeah. somewhere but I think in a weird way it's like when you have so much going on and there are obviously only a certain amount of hours in the day you just really force yourself to be very productive mm. and um you're not a procrastinator well I I am I definitely am I think I don't know I I think if anyone is like not a procrastinator in some way then I want to know what their secret is um Uh, Adderall probably (laughs) but in in New York that's the answer yeah maybe not here in New York that is 100% the answer um but no I think it's just like finding ways to stay like quite grounded and balanced so that you feel as good as you possibly can Mm. whilst balancing everything and not being like stressed out burnt out to be able to kind of keep feeding these things and I Mm. think I love doing everything that I do and if I didn't I wouldn't do it so Mm -hmm. I think it's also coming from a place of like genuinely wanting to explore all these things that I'm interested in and do a great job and and work across all of these different mediums and with different ideas and different people like I love that I think sometimes you can kind of feel a bit defeated over a project or an idea and then you have one meeting or you speak with one person and it completely like Mm. reshifts your energy and your excitement about something so I think it's like a lot of I don't know also seeing friends that are doing great things I think always hearing about what people are up to it just always like inspires me and I think Mm -hmm. makes me like really hungry and excited to work on whatever else I have in my mind that I want to work through. Because we, we both grew up in London um, yeah. and we're still here, despite the fact that it is torrential it's rain on a summer Friday out. in July. <laughs> um, do you still feel inspired by London? Or did you ever, I suppose? I should ask I first. definitely did growing up. I mean, I think I'm sure you feel the same. Yeah. It's like an amazing place to grow up. And, 100%. And I think the access to culture that we had 
I think it also really gave me like quite a fearlessness around like being able to kind of try anything I wanted to try mm. and and even if you would fail I think I was really excited by all of these different opportunities and ideas and things I could explore and I think London gave me access to that in a way that I think being in other cities like might yeah. not have yeah. um so I think, yeah, I mean, I started working as you did as well, like from a really young age. And yeah. I think I was a freakishly just freakishly like, young age, both of us, I think. <laughs> um, but I think for me, it was just like, I didn't want to like sit still and like kind of waste time. I was just like, I want to learn all these things. I'm mm. so curious. I'm mm-hmm. like so excited by stuff. I want to just like get started yeah. in the real world. Yeah. And I always had the sense like, I think even from a very young age, I was like, wow, this isn't, I have a lot of access that. Yeah by virtue of the fact just that I was born in this city exactly and I'm gonna use it yeah you know and I think that it like you I was always I always wanted to work I mean you know started interning way before it was legal oh yeah I think I was like 14 yeah same 13 14 which now I look back and I'm like wow but I'm glad I did it 100% because it is the it is the true privilege of growing up in a major city 100% you get access to you know I was interning at magazines when I was like 13 or 14 and then at a time when we, you know, we've spoken about, I think things were pretty, used to be quite scrappy. Yeah. <laughs> and you could just worm your way into places. And yeah. if you were hardworking and enthusiastic and curious. Exactly. You know, I mean, you were uh, editor at Days at 24. Yeah, editor in chief at 24. Yeah, I mean, that's quite quite insane. Yeah. 100% um, insane. <laughs> but, I mean, now I'm like, wow, if they, I mean, well, I suppose the current, current editor of Days old is if Kamara not, not not very old day no I think it's like early 30s yeah and I do think that London is a city that really rewards and celebrates youth culture and 100%. I think that that's beautiful about it I had um, my friend Louise Chen on the podcast recently and she was just talking about you know Paris where she's just come moved from is quite the opposite and they really like almost despise youth culture and there's no place for it whereas I think in the UK I mean obviously from a on a political standpoint they've decimated services that are available to young people which is really um tragic and I'm sure like it will be a while before we see the full effects of that but uh I I think there's a cultural sense that the, the the output of young people in London is definitely worth celebrating and and I just wonder how that will work now that it's so expensive I think that's a really scary thing yeah um because I think there was like there is inherently in London within the creative community like this kind of scrappiness of like people helping each other out Mm. and like getting things done and like being able to produce great work when you know there are environments where like you know really the opposite Mm. opposite should be happening so I think it's also I don't know it scares me a lot but I also think there's so so much great talent in London that I just feel like no matter what happens with the kind of political situation or the environment that people are kind of given to like exist and live and thrive in I just feel like there's this kind of like pushback that people have where they just kind of reject that and just find ways of like making amazing work and getting it through and but it's still like so upsetting to see like so many amazing art spaces like run by friends that, you know, there isn't a proper like support system for the arts mm, in the UK mm-hmm. where those very essential like spaces should be 
um sustained and mm. like thriving and really like heroed by London as a city but there's just like not support for it you know mm, mm, mm. it's interesting I guess you and I are of the first generation where people who are creatively inclined um ended up taking those skills to brands yeah um how do you feel about I don't know it's hard to articulate this but I suppose again we we were the first people you maybe we started out in editorial careers and then in order to survive aside from anything often ends up transferring those skills and and now obviously you're you know or for a long time you've worked in um creative editorial capacities at brands do you how do you feel about that do you is it do you think a delineation even exists anymore I feel like brands facilitate or support so many creative ventures now that it's almost you know hire young photographers you know fund projects Mm -hmm. because we're lacking the government funding do you think that there's is there any is there any delineation anymore I don't know I mean I think I think the thing that for me that has shifted a lot over the last like say five years and I don't know whether it's because I've become older and I've shifted where I'm working and like the remit that I exist within but I think in the way that publishing used to be this kind of platform for young people or young mm. creatives to kind of be a voice, um, I think that has shifted a lot. And I think mm. now more and more publishers work so closely with brands on branded content that I think oftentimes the kind of soul of that magazine mm. has changed. Yeah, I think also, you know, when I think back 10, 15 years ago with magazines where it's like, if you were a photographer, like if you had an editorial in Dazed or ID, mm. that was what would like make your career. I think mm. now photographers and, and artists and image makers have kind of shifted where they're kind of publishing their own thing or, mm. or putting on shows or like working in very different ways or they use their Instagram as a kind of portfolio to get them work in a way that they needed to before use magazines. So I think for me it's also been exciting now working more closely with brands and like seeing actually the platform brands can give Mm. young image makers and and that almost being a similar platform to a magazine obviously it's very different but I think there's almost more reach power definitely more budget you know kind (laughs) of working with with brands so I think that is also um yeah really interesting yeah and brands have you know evolved to play that role I suppose in you know they've some some brands the brand you work for other brands in the space have really stepped up and become really interesting creative worlds as opposed to just you know peddlers of clothes 100% yeah it's just it's it's just the shift is so profound so as I look at it I'm like wow that's really nuts that that's happened in our careers because when I started out trying to work in magazines I definitely never thought you know I would one day aspire to have some sort of brand title. Yeah. Um, I think it's more like the reach that a brand can give versus a magazine. And I think there's so much power in that. And, and I think that's, I don't know, for me on a personal level, so exciting to know what I could do within the context of a magazine and seeing like, how can I apply that same like thinking or perspective to working with a brand and like, Mm -hmm. what does that look like? Mm -hmm how can you kind of like have these different touch points with people that is like much wider reaching often than Mm. a magazine can be. Mm. What's your relationship like with um, the internet and social media? I I suppose they're two very different entities. (laughs) And what's your relationship like with social media? How do you think about it? And particularly in terms of building your own brand and 
whether that's as at the helm of a standalone brand or just the brand in and of itself like do you do you find some people find it incredibly toxic or are you just sort of like it's just something that you use as a tool I try not to overthink it because I think that can be really hard Mm. um yeah I think I try not to overthink it and I think it's also like really seeing it for what it is of like it's a tool and it's a bit of a portfolio and it's a very transactional platform now Mm -hmm. it's not very social really no um so I think it's almost being thinking of it really like that and I think on a personal level that's how I see it I think with Climax it's more of like I don't know I think it's like a really fun way for us to connect with our customers and like you know we have so many customers globally and I think you know we've never had a space in Mexico or in Australia and it's like really fun to like have like fans there that um are like yeah so in love with the brand and like get so excited when they place an order and receive something so I think I don't know I think it for me with Climax it's this very fun thing and I think Mm -hmm. on a personal level it's more of a kind of like work tool in Mm -hmm. a way and I think you just got to not like overthink it, which is obviously really hard. <laughs> I still text friends being like, am I lame if I post this? But I know you it's kind mad, of just isn't have it? to let it go, I think. I think that's smart. And with the internet, um, you use it as a research tool. Yeah, I and mean, it's like my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> One website in particular or just any of them? <laughs> just any of them. Um, but it's really funny I actually just I moved house and I have new internet and it's like put on like an adult lock thing so no. I was like that's not gonna work I, know, I, was like, books. I was actually on like a, a chat box thing with like three for the whole afternoon yeah. and then they're like there's a technical error so we cannot lift your adult content filter or whatever I was like this is hilarious that's um, actually happened to me I was just like, but a little bit less professionally damaging than it is. I should imagine you've got to put some slightly NSFW search terms in there to find the stuff you want. Um, But no, I think it's, I don't know. I think again, it's like amazing to be able to like be searching on like a website in Japan for a rare book that I've never seen or existed before that unless I was physically in Osaka or wherever the bookstore is, like I would be able to find. So Mm. I think from a research point of view it feels like this kind of like wild west like hunting ground and you're just like going through all these things and finding stuff and I think it still is that for me I'm sure it will come to a point where it's like you can't find things mm. like that anymore or mm-hmm. maybe I'd get less good at you'll kind have of, bought them all <laughs> exactly I would have taken them all already <laughs> you'll have completed um, the internet but it still feels I don't know I think it still feels like an exciting place for me I think now it's just like as we get older you you see things for what they are and I think that's also with social media I think it's not what it was to us five ten years ago and no. it won't be what it is now to us in five years but I think I think also for young people it's like really use it as like a portfolio and a tool for your work mm-hmm. and a vehicle um to do more of what you love and I think that would be like my biggest piece of advice and Mm -hmm. kind of see it in that way yeah absolutely do you do all your sourcing online or do you do a bit of physical hunting as well Still a mix and I think it's still like so fun to go to bookstores and like find stuff Mm. and like I still like love that and then it's like you you found something and then you like you know you google it and you like read all the research around how it was made when it was made and I think that's also like so fun Mm -hmm. to find 
do you go on like sourcing trips or are you mostly in the UK doing it? No, it's really just like whenever I travel for work or anything else, I like try and tag on a weekend here or there and, and find stuff. But like, I still find amazing stuff. I like the Strand in New York. Like I, I don't that's, know a I time mean, when I haven't gone. I mean, I, I go store. every time I'm in New York and I'm there a lot and I still always leave with like three books and I'm like, oh my God, I didn't know that like Doward Bay did this like amazing Chicago like teen school project in the 2000s or whatever it is yeah. that you're like oh this is amazing to it see, truly that know. is a truly incredible bookstore um do you have any favorites in london um love don Lon, which is obviously around the corner yeah. i think connor has such amazing taste and is so like thoughtful about his curation and um is a delight to go in and see what he has in store um i also think paul who runs november books has amazing stuff as well mm-hmm. Um, I don't know I'm quite sad like a lot of the Charing Cross Road bookstores that was such a big part of like my childhood and like coming being in London as a teenager like a lot of those don't exist anymore like aren't what they were before but I think that's just part of it and you're soon to have your own are we calling it a retail is it a shop is it a showroom I'm still trying to define what it is but I think it's just like we're going to open up our HQ as a as a shop um from Thursday to Saturday is 11 till 7. We actually just, yeah, with Christopher now, we've been testing some of the vinyl that we're going to put on the office window so for when Amazing. It so is it street-facing? No, it's on this tiny muse um, on, yeah, Wardour Muse. It's yeah. like off Wardour Street and Diablo Street. And it's really unsuspecting and it's this kind of crazy turquoise, really oddly proportioned, like, muse building. And we're on the first floor. There's two other offices above us, but it kind of... I love that. Yeah, I love it's a hunt. Like very, it, it's, it's very awkward and it fits, a hunt. It fits the product. That exactly. You've got to hunt it down. Exactly. It's not easily available to you. <laughs> um, um, so but we're going to do some fun stuff with, yeah, playing a bit with the space and the signage. And um, yeah, I think it's also a bit of a bit of an experiment to see how that works. And then I think I definitely want to open a proper storefront space at some point. But I think that will be in New York for the first yes i think that makes a lot of sense yeah i also think let's be frank like people in america spend a lot of money (laughs) on everything (laughs) and also you know like i'd say maybe 60 percent of our orders now uh in the u.s and i think um i think there's also such a like respect for book culture there and like if i think about new york it's like you have dashwood you have mast karma printed matter printed matter like there's like an amazing amazing history Mm -hmm. of like bookstores that yeah very well respected yeah. have a great program great curation um and they're like a big part of the creative community in they New are York, and I think there's maybe slightly less of that here mm, I sense that as well um like the literary scene here also feels smaller yeah. I feel like it, or at least in New York like young writers are still kind of play a cultural role whereas like I guess here probably because of the kind of economic constraints that we've just discussed yeah uh, all young writers end up having to pivot to being something else quite quickly (laughs) yeah like you can't just do that which is such a shame because I think it's something that should be so respected and yeah I have so much respect for writers I think it's one of the yeah (laughs) like me torturous things ever so I have so much respect for friends who publish and and work within that field and yeah but you said to me before that you don't read as much as you'd like to or you, yeah definitely not but um my one week holiday 
let's see right have you got have you got a pile of books ready I need to kind of dig through I just moved house so I need to kind of like unpack but I need to remember to not forget to pack a book or two or two because you might have time to read them um I don't know if you can recall them on the top of your head but last time we spoke um I asked you about a couple of books yes so I asked you um if there was a book that recently made an impact on you Mm mm-hmm and you said I said the Catherine Opie Dyke deck, which isn't a oh, book. Um, but so it's I failed at that question. <laughs> Fail <laughs> wrong. <laughs> no, but you've I actually saw it after we yeah. I went to um the it was gorgeous space. I did see it, although it was under glass. Yes. Which is probably for the best. You know when anyone's swiping one of the cards. <laughs> so that was a uh, I mean, you've obviously very articulately explained that is a object, an artifact that really sort of encapsulates everything that you're trying to do. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. And then a book that you'd recommend to everyone. Yeah, I think I said the Cookie Mueller walking through yeah. clear water painted black, if I can remember the title correctly. And it might even be one that I revisit again in the, for my week. Yeah, off. I feel like I, I read that book in like stages. Yeah. Um, because it's also split up into like three exactly, different sections. It's like, exactly. It's like these kind of, yeah, short stories and yeah. they're like completely insane. But I think they <laughs> also speak to this, what we were saying earlier about like a time culturally, like in, I mean, she wasn't just in New York. She was like in San Francisco. She was really all over the all place. All over the place. But I think it just speaks to a time where there was such kind of like energy and such strange kind of, intersections of like our um cult leaders there's mm. like a charles manson thing in there and then like film um <laughs> john waters like it was just like her i think so much of her life and her practice was this intersection of like the art world photography mm. um yeah like counterculture film culture camp culture like all of that and i think mm-hmm. it was just like really interesting to hear just these kind of short stories and and she was such an amazing writer, mm. even though, I mean, she was a writer and was like recognized as a writer, but I think also it was about her as like this kind of cultural figure and what yeah. she lived and this kind of like icon of, yeah. of New York. Downtown New York downtown culture. Yeah. It's interesting. I think a lot about that era of not only New York culture, but you know, what was happening in London at the same time, yeah. sort of mid ish eighties, and which I feel, I don't know, maybe it's just me and what I'm looking at, but I feel is it occupies a big space in like cultural memory and reference yeah. right now. I've been trying to think about why My, it yeah. is. It, I, I guess, I don't know. I guess maybe like before the AIDS crisis, it was the last mm-hmm. moment of like pure hedonism. Yeah. Maybe there's something about that and the fact that hedonism really does not feel like the the mood no, right now globally. It hasn't for a while. Yeah, no, there's no hedonism to be found. For, for me, also like my parents, I suppose that was like their era, so I've got more references from for it. Sure. Looking at like what they were wearing and what they were doing at that time because they were both in London and like I've got some sort of cultural connection to it. But I do feel that it has quite a strong, yeah, it has quite a strong, I don't know if you find that in like the books that you're sourcing or the or the objects that they're coming from that era, but I feel like downtown New York, Soho, London, yeah, Hatch takes a lot of space up. Yeah, and I think it was also this freedom to be like very like multidisciplinary and how people approach their work and what they did and how they like move through a city and move through different cultural spaces. Yeah. That I think, again, it's like this kind of freedom of like, oh, you can be a writer, but then also you can work like on curate a show or you can yeah. like 
write a script you can act yeah. you can be a mod just like all of these different things where I think it felt like completely fluid in how people like navigated mm. culture mm-hmm. in a way that I think we've kind of been taught like oh you should be in this area or that area mm. and I think our parents generation it was very like if you decided this one thing of your career like you stay in that lane mm-hmm. for the, your whole mm-hmm. life like you're kind of like mm-hmm. really fixed to whatever career choice you've made and I think we're maybe more um have a similar spirit to like yeah. a cookie Mula generation where it was like we can try different things yeah. and do different things and people like allow you that space to do it and it's fine to pivot although I do think a key difference is that at that time or at least for the way my parents tell it because they were both um journalists actually oh, interesting. so they were doing creative work yeah um but they were like no one really thought about having a career no, like that wasn't a thing like no, whereas I feel like especially growing up in London I don't know how you felt but it was like from a very young age it was like what's your career what are you going to study what are you going to be what are you going to become I also think people of our generation or our specific part of our generation were very much like um warped by like the neoliberal agenda that we grew up under without yeah. realizing it 100%. you know which is why the, by the time I was 24 I was like a little like girl boss <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, I feel like I saw a meme the other day that was like, um, I don't know, when you were like 10, but you acted like you were 30. And then like, yeah. now that we're like, in our like, mid early 30s, it's like, I feel like I'm also like a 10 year old again, or like oh. this weird thing where you've kind of like been an adult for like 20 years. Oh, I like, fully regressed. I'm exhausted. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally like when I was like 20, I took myself very seriously. Yeah. I was really rigid, like my yeah. schedules, my routines, and my, to be honest, my ambitions, which I don't necessarily yeah. regret because I feel like it led me to push myself 100%. at a young age when, you know, other people I knew were just like taking out to drugs. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it was no. like never that interesting to me. I was yeah. always on this like little career path, yeah. um, which in the recent years I've become much less attached to. Yeah. But when I look back, I think, you know, I thought it was me and my personality. To yeah. some extent it was. But I also think I was being shaped by like an ideology that I was growing up under 100%. and and that idea of like, yeah, like um, sort of self-actualization and, and identity through work and career. And yeah. I don't think I have ever and probably will ever shake that. No, I think it's like so ingrained in us somehow. But if as you, you know, as you do, if you approach it through a lens of curiosity and fun and yeah. excitement. Yeah then that's great yeah I think it's when you're when you're forcing it and you're doing it because you feel like you have to as long as you're staying genuinely excited yeah do you have any like what do you do when you feel like you slip out of a state of excitement with with your work or you feel uninspired I think I definitely go through like shifts where maybe one aspect of my work or one project I'm working on I'm just like really not feeling it and you kind of like fall out of love with it and I think then often I maybe like give time to other projects Mm. or other ideas that I'm like more excited and more Mm -hmm. curious about that time but there's always a way you come back to those other things and I think for me I think I was saying when we last spoke is like I really feel like I need to have multiple things happening at once and it like makes me better at my job Mm. across everything so it's like they will feed into each other. It's not like these kind of like separate lives as much as sometimes they do feel like that. It's like everything is really kind of interwoven and like it all feeds into each other and it's like all part of what you're interested in. And sometimes you don't really realize that a project that you're working on that has nothing to do with something yeah. else is like there's some sort of thread that comes through and 100%. Yeah, you're I building up an internal it. reference library. 100%. Yeah. And I think 
it also then means I think when you're balancing lots of different projects or ideas or different like elements of work you are then like forced to really cut out time for different things and you kind of like have a three-hour window at the end of the night that you're like okay it's 9 p.m I'm done with this I'm gonna like spend the next few hours researching this and you kind of like have these like brackets of time and you kind of have to like give everything to that time because there are only <laughs> 24 hours in a day I love that you, a bracket for you starts at 9 p.m most <laughs> people are like that's when I wind it up you're like mm, a new window <laughs> you're like time to do something else um well thank you for making the time to do this Isabella because I know yeah you got a lot on and you're juggling a lot and you've done this for the second time so I massively appreciated it appreciate it and um I hope now you can go home and chill yes no more windows today no hopefully more windows, no all right it's like too depressing outside no thank you thank you